excited you're here to worship with us. It's impressive, especially if today is your first day coming out in uh, this beautiful Midland, Michigan weather. I actually watched last night the radar. I don't know if you did. Uh, one of the things that you know, preachers are doing on Saturday night is watching the weather for Sunday morning. You know? And I'm looking at it, but there was actually this little open spot right in this big thing of snow, and it was right in Midland. So I was like, sweet, thank you, God. Here you are, here I am. We're in Philippians. We're glad to be here. Um, we are pursuing Paul and especially Christ's message to us through this letter. And I want to start with a little story that happened a while back before our stewardship series. And that story is this Pastor David and I and the elders were discussing, you know, how to move the needle and see our church progress in advancing the gospel and the kingdom of God. And we realized that stewardship is obviously an issue for us both financially and spiritually, and we went to a conference on it. And it was one of those situations where um, you start looking at the numbers and you realize that if you do the mileage thing for one of your personal vehicles, it's actually going to be more expensive than renting a vehicle. So we went ahead and rented a vehicle, and it was a Monday morning departure, so the office was closed on the weekend. We end up getting the car on Friday. And it was another one of those situations, you've probably been through them before, where you're going to the rental place, and of course, there's people, and there's delays, and everyone's a little bit flustered, and it was a Friday afternoon, I was done with my work, didn't have to be anywhere, so I was sitting there pretty cozy, and by the time I got up to, about two hours later, got up to the uh, counter, the guy said, well, sir, you know, we're sorry, we don't have any of the you know, econo vehicles that you rented, all we have left is this one, but I think you're going to like it. All of a sudden, I'm a happy rental car customer, because out front, the only thing left is a brand new ultra black Dodge Challenger, and I was like, oh, 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 oh. Jerry, I'll, I'll take it home, okay, twist my arm. So, they put me in this thing, and I've got it for the weekend, right? I'll tell you about that in a little bit. But I'm looking at it, and basically the moral of the story is, you know, I didn't have a lot of options, but here it was laid out in front of me, and about the only thing for me to do was accept it, put it in gear, and go. So, yeah, <laughs> you bet. Just, I didn't earn it. I definitely didn't pay for it, because the, the, our payment was much less than this thing, but they were giving it to me. And so all I had to do is accept it and drive. Today we're in our second set of exhortations in Philippians chapter 2. And like the Challenger situation, the Dodge Challenger, it's a fancy sports car if you're not a sports park car person. Um, basically, what the Apostle Paul is going to say to us is that salvation is very similar to this Dodge Challenger situation. It's a super cool, awesome, beautiful machine that has just landed in your lap. The Lord God has given it to you. All that's left is for you to accept it, put it in gear, and go. It's not something you earned. It's not something you paid for. It's something that's been delivered from outside of you. Therefore, the theme for today, I think, will sum up this passage pretty well, is this. Put it in gear and go. Just put it in gear and go. Just to remind you what uh, the letter has, the way the letter of Philippians has worked so far, I'm actually going to do it, you, it's fine if you're turning to Philippians, but I'm going to do it a little bit reverse today. I'm going to explain and then read at the end. 
But the way this letter has gone is, if you remember, Paul began with our identity. Who are you in Christ? As servants of Jesus Christ, here's the structure. First of all, he starts with the identity. And then as a result of who you are in Christ, he gives this series of exhortations or these commands. Because of who you are, because of this gift, therefore do this. So here's your identity. Next, what he does, and you'll see this pattern recurring throughout. If you like patterns, he says, okay, here's some exhortations. Now here's an example. Jesus. <laughs> That's a pretty good example, right? And then today, we're going to move into the second set of exhortations. And then he'll have two examples immediately following that. Next week, you'll see these two guys, T and E, or Timothy and Epaphroditus. So today, we're in the second set of exhortations, which means that basically, just to refresh your memory, the way the sermons have gone is like this. Servants of the high king, that's your identity, advance the kingdom together, that's exhortation one, standing firm in the same spirit, that's the second exhortation, just like Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, but instead emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, and as a result, God highly exalted him. So there's your example. Now, we begin in verses 12 and following. It actually starts with a word, therefore. And what Bible scholars and professors and other people will tell you, if you ever see this word in the Bible, therefore, you always want to ask, what's it there for, <laughs> right? What is it there for? And it's pointing back to these previous exhortations. It's saying, based on your identity, based on your purpose of advancing the gospel as a servant of the high king, striving together in one mind. Therefore, on account of all of what I have already just said to you, because of that, grasp that and work out, verse 12, your own salvation with fear and trembling. Therefore, based on your identity, based on what you're trying to do together as a group, therefore, work it out. Put it in gear and go. It's dropped into your lap. Now, apply it. Push on the gas and go. So the sermon structure I'm going to follow today then is this. I'm going to try to explain to you what that word work out means because I think that gets confusing for a lot of us. Some of us, based on our background, assume it means one thing, others another. What does it mean to work out your salvation? And then following that, I'll tell you how. So what's it mean and how? Just those two steps, but we'll spend a good amount of time on each one. So what does it mean to, then to work out your own salvation? Well, depending on the tradition you came from, it could mean a lot of things. Um, one thing that I think in our area and in some others, people coming from certain uh, very high church, traditional legalistic forms of uh, Christianity will come to it with the idea that it's all on me. And if I don't do this, and if I don't do that, then I'm going to hell because it's all on me. i got to work out my salvation. i just got to put my nose to the grindstone and put the gears in and just go, 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 go. And boy, con condemnation and guilt and, oh, I feel terrible all the time because I'm never good enough. I'll never measure up. I just can't do it. By the way, Christian, don't let anyone ever tell you you can earn your salvation. It's simply impossible. You can't work enough 
to earn the blood of Christ. Any system that sets itself up to say to you, you can do it, is wrong. (laughs) You can't. You start from a position of inability and then you realize, as Scripture makes very clear to us, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. This is perhaps, I think those five things are probably the single most important bits of your theology that you may have, other than the Trinity. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. And that is the whole thing. Not just how you're you know, forgiven, but from start to finish. That's how salvation plays itself out. Why? Well, the Bible tells us very simply, for by grace have you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. <laughs> it is a gift, like the challenger. Boom, it is in your lap. Not a result of works so that no one can boast. We have absolutely nothing to brag about when someone else did what we could not do. Salvation is a gift. What then, Paul, when you say to us in Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation? I thought you just said it was a gift. How then can I work it out? Isn't that a contradiction in terms that you say work out that which I did not do? In reality, I think this is actually our misreading rather than Paul's miscommunication. And let me show you three reasons that is the case. And I think you can take these three reasons and apply them to any time you're reading the Bible and it'll help you understand what it says better. But in this context, if you're, you know, stumbling over this um, passage, let me help a little like this. What does it mean? Well, there are three things. And you can write them down, I'll show them to you in a minute. But it, it's wording, context, and concept. The wording, the context, and the concept will help you get this. So let's start out with the wording. This is pretty simple, actually. It says, the text says, work out your salvation. Notice that I emphasize there the idea, work out. It did not say work for. It said work out. There's a significant difference between working out that which you already have and working for something which you do not already possess. If you are working for or working towards, it means you don't have it yet. But if you are working out, it means it's already been given to you. Now it is your opportunity to play from this position of strength or power to move forward. Work out. Work from. Not work for. Work out. Your salvation. So first of all, look at the wording. Secondly, look at the context. This, this simple tip will help probably the majority, the vast majority of theological errors, you know, from anything from gospel, uh, prosperity gospel, all the way to legalism or whatever. Look at the context. Don't just read the single verse, but read the verse before it and read the verse after it. In this case, it's a comma and the following verse. The verses aren't necessarily with sentences or anything. They just give us a spot. They just give us a location. But here, the whole concept is in the context of verses 12 and 13. And if you look at it, see what it says. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, 
So now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation. Now, if you stop there, you think, oh, it's all about, you know, working. With fear and trembling, for, verse 13, here's the key, for, it is actually God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, you can't even want the good unless God makes you will it. The very reason that you desire to do well is evidence of the Holy Spirit working in your life. Some people come and they say, I don't know if I'm alive or dead. I'm like, well, do you want to do good or do you want to do bad? And Well, I want to do good. Okay, (laughs) that's evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in you. You wouldn't have that if you were dead. You are alive because you desire to do well. If you did not desire to do well, that would show me you're dead. But it is God who gives you this will to work, both to will and to work. So the whole desire and the ability to do are both from God. Said in another way, here's a fancier way to say it, but it's beautiful and precise, so I'll try it. The indicative makes possible the imperative. In other words, the declarative, what God does, what he says, I do, makes possible what it is he tells you, you are to do. Because God did, you can. (laughs) If God did not, you could not. But because God did, therefore you must. The indicative makes possible the imperative. The fact that God began this good work in you and will be faithful to complete it, those guarantees are the motivation for us moving forward. Without those, there is no hope. But because of those, there is a guarantee and therefore a motivation to work. Work it out. Why? Because God did and he will. God always does what what he says he'll do. Therefore, you must work out your salvation. What God does makes it possible. So too, in this verse I just read to you, look, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, I quoted it earlier and I love to quote it because it's that by grace through faith. But if you read it, it's got the whole package in it too. Verse 10, after you say, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Verse 10 says, for, oh, there's that for again. What? We are his workmanship. God, you are God's clay pot. He is designing you. He is structuring you. He is building you. Created in Christ Jesus. Oh, there's that identity thing. For what? Good works. Not to sit on the couch, but to do something which God actually, believe it or not, prepared your good works for you to do in advance. Therefore, walk in them. The indicative makes possible the imperative. Because God did, we must do. So, first of all, this is what does it mean to work out? Does this mean we earn our salvation? No. What it means is, if you understand the wording, work out, not work for. If you understand the context, verse 13, it's actually God who does the work. And if you get the concept then you're in the right place. And the concept is simply this. Here's the big picture. Salvation. We North American evangelicals so often think that the gospel is a preacher makes the call, people come forward, and we're done. It's not it. The gospel is this good news. Gospel means good news of God's cosmic scope of redemption for all of reality. He begins even before his own creation 
having this plan in place and then watching it play out exactly as he knew it would. And then there is creation, redemption, sorry, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And that includes the cosmos and me. So my salvation is not just the forgiveness of my sins, but it's also my restoration and my glorification. I'm not there yet. I'm on the path. I am, I am saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. Salvation occurs in three different tenses, not just one, but three. So if it's a whole process that he's talking about, if you think of the challenger analogy, that sports car that I talked about earlier, justification, the initial process would be like the vehicle. Here it is. It's a gift for by grace have you been saved. It's a gift. Boom. But then because you didn't earn it, because you didn't pay for it, what you're supposed to do is just hop in the seat and drive. That is the sanctification. That's the being saved. That's a gradually moving forward in this vehicle that God has given you. You're progressing as you grow to become more like Christ. But that ultimate destination, perfection of being exactly like Christ, you're not there yet. You're just going down the path in this car that's been provided for you that you didn't pay for, but you're pushing on the gas. So your glorification, then, is your future hope. That is the gospel sequence. There's a title of today's sermon, by the way. That's usually the way I do it, in case you're interested. There's some little hint dropped in the middle that's the sermon title. It's kind of like, where's Waldo? Just watch for it. You'll find it eventually. That's the gospel sequence. That's how it plays out. You begin with justification. You move to sanctification. The ultimate is glorification. You are saved. You are being saved. And you will be saved. So get in the car and go. (laughs) Go. Don't just sit there. You have this beautiful brand new machine plunked into your life. Take it. Well, how do I do that, Pastor Jeremy? Well, I'm glad you asked. Such a participative audience. You guys are awesome. Thank you. The following verses are going to tell us specifically how to do that, how to work out your own salvation. Now, there's other texts that tell you other ways, but this one's going to be very, very specific. This is going to give you one very specific way to work out your salvation. And it's actually one of the more difficult verses, I think, in the entire Bible. And the reason for it is because it's all-inclusive thing. You know, if it's only one little spot in my life, maybe I could manage that. But the problem is, there's this all-inclusive imperative. In other words, there's this command that covers everything. There's no sort of um, compartmentalizing, well, maybe not my politics, or maybe not my marriage, or maybe not my job, maybe... No, no, it's the broad umbrella that covers everything. This command covers it all. And this is what he says in verse 15... This is how you work out your salvation in this context. He says, do all things. Everything. Every single itty bitty tiny area of your life. Do it without any grumbling or complaint. That should have just struck every single person in this room, (laughs) including yours truly. Do all things means... (laughs) All things. You know what the Greek word for all is? All. (laughs) It's it. Everything. All. If your food doesn't taste good, 
no grumbling or complaining. If it's cold, no grumbling or complaining. If your work is no fun, do it without grumbling or complaining. If your clothes don't fit the way they used to, put them on without grumbling or complaining. If your body hurts, which they all do eventually, no grumbling or complaining. If the quality isn't quite as high as you think it should be or you feel is just, no grumbling or complaining. When people disappoint you, and they will, no grumbling or complaining. When your marriage isn't what you dreamed it would be, no grumbling or complaining. When you are single and you thought you would be married by now, no grumbling or complaining. When your finances don't fit the ends you thought they should, no grumbling or complaining. When parenting is simply too much, no grumbling or complaining. When people are talking about mergers and synergy and downsizing, no grumbling or complaining. Do all things, all, your politics, your people, your work, everything, without grumbling or complaining. Even the weather. (laughs) Ready for this one? I worked on it this morning. Whether the weather be cold, whether the weather be hot, whatever the weather will weather the weather, whether we like it or not. All right. I read it in a book. It was cute, so we tried. Do all things together, whether the weather, whether we like it or not. Do all things. And really, that together part's a key word. I'll get there in a moment. But let me give you a little bit more about this grumbling thing. It's not hard to explain what it is because we all know what it is to grumble. Perhaps we deny that we grumble. Because a lot of times I think we mask it in simply saying, well, I'm just sharing my opinion. I'm really complaining. (laughs) But I'm entitled to my opinion, right? I mean, I got to express it somehow. (laughs) You got to have somebody to vent to. Him and her and them. (laughs) Ganguso is the Greek word for grumble. And it's actually one of those really cool words like croak, Ba, nay, moo, boom, splat, which we call onomatopoeia. They're words that sound like what they are, and so the idea here, gonguzo, is to grumble. It's in fact the very same word that we get our English word gong from. And the reason is because when you strike a gong, reverberations run throughout, and when you strike a grumbling note, reverberations run throughout. It's not just you that you affect, it's everybody else, and those circles just expand, bing, 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 all the way to the end. And you ganguso, grumble, 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 grumble. And the reverberations fill the room. So easy to do, we don't even realize we're doing it half the time. It's especially easy with decisions we don't agree with, with Poor leadership or lack thereof. The little mutter under your breath that really to you isn't just such a bad sin. It's actually one of the deadly ones. 
These things, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 says, happened to them as an example, but they are written down for our instruction. Let's look at the children of Israel and see how grumbling worked out for them. We know they did a lot, and we laugh at them, but really theirs was a hard life. I don't want to live in the desert. I don't want to wander around for years upon end with no home. It's not something that any of us would enjoy, really. As a result, Exodus 16.2 says, The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Over and over again, you find this happening. Uh, one of the more famous ones is when they got tired of the manna. It's this bread-ish stuff that God provided for them. They're grumbling about the food, and they're like, man, you know? Do you guys remember when we were in Egypt, we ate cucumbers, melons, leeks, onion, garlic, but now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing left to look at at all but manna. Blah! <laughs> I hate this stuff. I'm sick of it. And God heard the request. Numbers chapter 11 says it like this. He sent quail. And then, while the meat was yet between their teeth, but they were still chewing before it was even consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people and he struck them down with a very great plague. When you grumble... You strike the gong, the reverberations run throughout, and you invite a plague. Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 6, along the way, again it says the people became impatient. I would too. Who wants to walk around for 40 years? Not me. People spoke against God and asked Moses, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and water, and we loathe this worthless food. This time, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many in Israel died. When you grumble, you invite vipers into your midst. You think your grumbling is the real thing. No way. Someone else is going to bite you twice as hard as what you just said. It will jump up and bite you. It will come back even worse. Grumbling is a hyena sin because it insults God and his sovereignty. It questions his authority and his decisions. It says, God, you don't really know best. I do. It is disrespectful, undercutting, and unkind. It is not just a little sin. It is, in fact, one of the big ones and will lead to your destruction. Grumbling invites the plague, and grumbling invites vipers into your midst. Here's three things it does to you, your church, and your testimony. It disrupts your spiritual progress, your spiritual growth, your spiritual life. Just throws a wrench into it and says, bam, stop. It disrupts the unity and harmony of your church. And you'll see in this passage as well, it, it will destroy the testimony to the outer world. You're... There's supposed to be a stark contrast between the relationships you have in the family of God and those outside. When you look at Philippians 2, you'll see the contrast of those. They're very different. Should be very, very different. 
When you grumble, it throws a wrench in your sports car that's speeding down the road all of a sudden goes wham and hits something it shouldn't. Instead, Philippians 2 says, do all things, everything, marriage, parenting, work, politics, church, clothes, food, physical, whatever, without grumbling or disputing so that you may be, this is how Christians are supposed to look, blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in contrast to, in the midst of, relationships that look entirely different crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Therefore, the antidote to holding fast, the antidote to grumbling is this, holding fast to the word of life together with joy. Even, Paul says, if you're being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, don't grumble. But instead, be glad and rejoice with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Likewise, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Here's the command, don't grumble. Here's the antidote, rejoice. How do I do that, Pastor Jeremy? In the next five minutes, let me give you a few quick, tangible tips that will equip you with some practical ways to put this into practice even today, but not just today, Today, tonight, tomorrow, next week, and the rest of your life. Today, when you hear that thought come to mind that says, Ugh, erga burga, onomatopoeia, right? Erga burga. <laughs> what happens is you hear in your voice this little thing. I'll give you an example. Uh, we have a, one of our children that has a beautifully, just by God's grace, positive outlook. Not everyone in our family is like this, but one got it and we're thankful. He tends to say things like, well, at least, blah, <laughs> whatever happens, if glass shatters on the floor, well, at least we didn't cut our foot. <laughs> good point, good point. The other night, last week, Eden had a fever like so many of you have experienced recently, and uh, we woke up during the night multiple times, you know, it's thermometer and Tylenol and all this management and stuff, and next day we didn't know if we woke up or the alarm clock went off or we were already awake and we were looking at it and we were saying to ourselves wow you know what it's so good that we haven't experienced this in a long time (laughs) you know our kids have actually been sleeping through the night for like two years now (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) you know some people look at young parents who are young and they're like, ah, you're young, you can do it. Let me tell you, sleep deprivation doesn't feel good no matter what age you are. <laughs> if you're not sleeping through the night, you're not doing well. And it's been a long time since we've had to remember that. And we just were reminded of it this last week and we're saying, wow, it sure is good to sleep through the night. If you're sleeping through the night, that's a blessing. So good. Here's some other examples I think at the women's conference, they talked about it a little bit. They called it replacement. What happens is you have this thought or idea that comes into your mind. You identify that thing. Don't try to ignore it. Just identify it. You say, what is the falsehood or the lie or the attack of the devil that just came at me? You're no good. You're not good enough because. You'll never measure up. You're not as good as so-and-so. I'm doomed. Blah, blah, blah. Whatever that negative thought was, you take that and write it down. And then you take your Bible and you set it right next to it and you say, does this agree with that? Well, no, why not? Okay, here's a verse that says no. 
<laughs> you know, the devil is the father of lies, and I'm the son of Jesus, so I'm not in his family. Don't call me a liar, you liar. <laughs> You're lying. Identify the thought and go after it. Instead of grumbling, rejoice. Instead of complaining, pray. Instead of questioning God's motives, ask him for help. You not, may not be able to trace his hand, but you can trust his heart. You may not be able to follow this line through your life, but don't believe the devil's lies that says it's not there. You can believe, you can trust, and any time the devil tries to come at you, he's saying, no, don't. Don't believe, don't trust. Why? Because this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. And if you're not believing, if you're not trusting, that faith is gone and you lose. But if you believe that God is bigger than your problem, if he's got enough finances to pay for it, if he's got enough whatever to help, then you're okay. So any problem that comes your way, you just say, okay, here's the problem. I may not be bigger than that. Is God? Oh, yeah. He's with me. He promised. He said, I know that's true. I may not feel like it, but that's the devil's lie to say he's not. Therefore, I'm okay because this is bigger than that. God is bigger than. That's a great line you can use on nearly anything. You're going out the driveway, you're thinking about a problem for that day. Is God bigger than that problem? Yeah, okay, keep going. Put it in gear and go. Why? Because <laughs> God is bigger. Is God powerful enough to help me stop? Oh, no, I don't think God... He raised Jesus from the dead, and that same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you. Holy Spirit, the most powerful force in the entire universe, is alive and living in you. Is God strong enough? Believe. Yes, He is. By grace, through faith. That's how you're saved. By grace, through faith. Faith. This is the victory that overcomes the world. Not our works. God's. And our faith in them. So yeah, work out your own salvation. Even if you're poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Rejoice. Rejoice. And likewise, look what verse 18 says, just a reminder. You also should be glad and rejoice, what, by yourself in the closet when no one's looking? <laughs> With me. It's a group thing. If I don't feel like rejoicing, maybe you could rejoice a little bit and help me out. <laughs> I need your help. Your rejoicing causes me to rejoice. Work out your, you all, plural, it's a group thing, salvation. It's not an individual, isolated thing. It's a community, a gospel community. Believers called out, sanctified, set apart to be different, shining as lights in the world. Therefore, work out your collective you salvation. Paul's command is for you to work out your salvation in your local church in things like life groups, small groups, various serving capacities, volunteering in children's ministry, in facilities. Thank you, by the way, to all the people who cleared our uh, snow this morning, in youth and worship arts and missions, both foreign and local. Don't complain. Put it in gear and go. Put it in gear and go. Philippians 2, 12 through 18. Let's hear it again and think about all that's been said and put it together 
Here it is in conclusion. This is what Paul is saying to you today. Therefore, my beloved, Midland, the beloved of God, as you have always obeyed, here's some encouragement. So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Jesus has left, but he's still here. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's actually God who works in you, church, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do everything without grumbling or disputing. Yeah, you may have good reason, but your reason takes grace for granted. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ Jesus, I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain, even if we are poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial altar of our faith. Rejoice. Likewise, you also rejoice with me. Father, we thank you and praise you for your good work. Everything you do is right and true and just. I'm sorry for every single time I've said that it's not. Anytime I grumble or complain, it's just the same. Pretending as if you made a mistake or I know better, I'm sorry. God, please help. Uh, We face a lot of problems and struggles and turmoil. We do hurt and we do have needs. I pray that you would meet us in those moments and help us one another together to love, encourage, and build up so that we can work out our salvation doing everything for the glory and praise of Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.